Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome back to Open Deeply. Today, we're excited to have our guest, Siri Dahl, on for a second time to process her bio from the previous episode. Now, just a quick reintroduction. Siri is a model, podcaster, powerlifter, and award-winning adult film performer who has used her platform to advocate for social change. Welcome back, Siri. Hey, thanks so much. I'm so excited for this to dig into everything. (laughs) Oh, we are too. Now, before we get to the digging in, I want to make a note and remind everyone that Open Deeply Podcast is not a replacement for therapy or therapy. Please know that this episode has themes of sexual and emotional abuse. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, therapist, or emotional support hotline such as 800-273-TALK, which is 8255. Okay, before we get started with questions, I just wanted to say a few words about sexual abuse. Sexual abuse often instills a harmful message in the survivor's psyche that hampers their ability to have agency over their own mind, emotions, and body. Side note, if you identify as a woman, this gets amplified by cultural misogyny. And so this dynamic can lead to survivors having trouble asserting emotional and physical boundaries, making them easy prey for future manipulative controlling partners, especially if they have not started to heal. This theme shows up in various ways in all three of our bios. Uh, To heal, a survivor has to do the hard work to take their voice back and take their body back. Siri, in your bio, I could hear that struggle And specifically in the last few years, I can hear you taking your agency back for sure. But let's start at the beginning. Here's my first question. After your assault, you ended up pretty alone with your feelings, with little emotional support. What do you wish you had known when you were younger that would have helped you get help and heal from the aftermath of sexual abuse? That's a very good question. I've actually thought about this so much and I still don't have any like super clear cut answers um, because it, it, in part because it's really hard to know how I might've been a different person or how my life might've been different had I gotten really like the proper therapy and, and attention and aftercare after my experience with sexual assault. But I, I think a huge thing that I needed to hear that I really didn't hear enough from the people who should have been saying it was that it wasn't my fault. I was never told the invert. It's not, no one ever said, Oh, it is your fault, which is, I guess, better. (laughs) Like, you know, it could have been worse. (laughs) The response could have been worse in that regard. But I, you know, I think, I think my mom at one point did say like, you know, this isn't your fault, but I feel like I also could hear that it took her effort to say that, which made me feel even worse somehow at the time. And like, even just that, like, that is something I have actually talked about significantly in, in my own therapy. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard. Like, 
the whole thing is hard. Um, I've, I've talked more with my mom, for example, about that and her response to, to everything like as an adult. And that was actually a huge thing. Uh, a healing moment for me was like having an honest conversation with my mom at one point where I was like, Hey, like you didn't respond very well to this. I felt a little bit like, uh, uncared for. And of course she had no idea. She, in her mind, she was just doing her best. Yeah. On that note, um, you know, I've been working with sexual abuse survivors for just short of two decades. And even when somebody was sexually abused when they were three, um, extensively, they will still blame themselves. They'll say, oh, I was a flirty little three-year-old, which blows my oh mind my even now. And so people that are sexual abuse survivors, they need to hear that a lot and in a strong way that it was not their fault. And it takes a lot um, for them to take that in sometimes. So you're, you're not alone in that. And that is something that we can all do is like show up for people and, and be there for them in that way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's, that's kind of the thing that was missing, I suppose, from from my experience was, you know, I, I did hear uh, at least the one time from a parent, like, hey, this wasn't your fault. But the consistency around that was not it, it. I didn't hear it enough from enough different people, I think. And my, you know, I just sort of replaced a different narrative in my head and, and made it my own fault for a, a very long time. When I was a teenager, I didn't really like keep a journal. I've never been a huge person for journaling. But what I did do, because for a long time, my like life goal was that I wanted to be a recording artist, like a musician. And I used to I used to write songs the way that other kids would write in a journal. So the lyrics I wrote for songs were really like (laughs) my journaling. And there was one point where I went back in an old journal, which I I don't know how I've managed to like lose or probably intentionally throw away a lot of them over the years. But there's one that I had still that I found like, you know, five years ago or something. And there was a a page in this journal where I'd written lyrics to a song and one that I actually ended up recording. Can't find the recording anymore. But at the time, I probably wrote this song three months or so after my sexual assault happened. I had no idea what it was about when I wrote it. But as an adult looking back and reading this, I was like, Jesus Christ, this is about trauma. (laughs) Like it was so evident that it was about trauma and about how I felt very uh, broken. And yeah. Yeah. And and it was really hard to, to read that. I don't know if you know this about me, Siri, but I'm also an art therapist. And a lot of times when people have just been sexually abused initially, they can't talk about it. Or maybe they've been shut out from the people that are supposed to support them and tell them it was not your fault and I'm here for you. And so a lot of times the first wave is art, like you know, journaling, making music, creating an art piece, because that's a gentler mm-hmm. way to communicate and it's more nuanced. Yeah. So, you know, Siri, there's so many upsetting things that went down in your life just a few years ago. And, you know, I I get from your perspective that that it feels like it was light years ago. But I have a few questions about that that I want to ask you. One, I want to know what made your previous boyfriend stop stalking you. But also, it, it sounds like like you feel that you have a you've broken the pattern of dating emotionally abusive and controlling men. And I want to know, how do you feel that you've been able to do that? So he, as I told that story in the previous episode with this boyfriend who had like 
stalked me and then we broke up in this weird public spectacle uh, where he had come to the place I was in public, <laughs> stalking me still. So, and I already, I, I talked about how, you know, I, I was like, I never want to see you again. And he left the place and then went like packed his stuff. Uh, he essentially like, uh, I think he told everyone in his family that I used to do porn. Like they didn't know that at the time, mm. you know, and I knew uh, I was, he had a large family and a very close knit family. And I was very much invited into his family during the time that we were dating um, like his mom would make jokes about us getting married and stuff. So it was it was that kind of like they really accepted me and they liked me a lot. And it, the first thing he did after I told him I never wanted to see him again was he went on Facebook and like started pu- publicly posting things about me being like a slut and told all his like cousins that I had been a porn star in the past. And then I started getting messages from like his extended family members, like people I've never met saying like, how could you do this to him? Like, blah, blah, blah. And it, it was Mm, horrible. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was intense. And as I mentioned, we also, he and I met at work and we still worked together during this time period. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't really know. I think that he just hit a point where he was like, I, he, his, paranoia around like oh is she cheating on me or or whatever i think it just converted into like real hatred for me (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i think he stopped stalking me on his own like i which was very fortunate that i didn't have to like deal with it beyond that it was like the relationship ended this the stalking ended yeah that's a blessing that part Yeah, yeah yeah it it was um you know and i remember having to talk to my boss at work and like Cause it, it, it really like messed with my head that he had done that to me. And I remember talking to my boss and I think, cause I was like, I, I I'm having trouble remembering specifically, but the people at work knew that something was wrong. And a lot of them had seen the things my ex was posting about me on Facebook. And so people were like, what the hell is going on here? So yeah, there was a time when I think they were trying to schedule us. So we never had to work at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people joke about stalking, but it, it really is terrifying. And I'm so glad that it, it did just like fade out because, uh, yeah, I mean, to be stuck at work with somebody that's treating you that way sounds really, really hard to say the very least. It, it was, mm-hmm. it was very odd. Yeah. And I mean, the, for, I mean, I didn't even identified as stalking behavior for a long time. Cause I was like, well, we live together and we're dating. <laughs> like yeah. how can someone you live with stalk you? But I mean, they can because right. that's, you know, I, I would be out of the house in a place where I didn't give my consent for him to be following me around. And that's exactly what stalking is. So exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, you know, yeah, I'm glad. And so that second part, um, you know, how do you feel like you've, broken the pattern of dating emotionally abusive and controlling men. Uh, It seems like just by the last part of your bio, it sounds like you feel like you have kind of improved that a little bit. Oh, so much. I mean, a huge part of it was uh, after that summer when I was in the hospital and after I got out and really was like, I have to, I have to change my life again like I you know I I thought I had fixed everything when I moved away from LA and then here I was you know four year three years later or whatever and feeling even deeper in a hole of of depression and like why and and I and I did a lot of 
looking inward and realized, well, God, part of this is the fact that ever since I retired from porn and moved out to Kentucky, I have been serially monogamously dating these men who like don't even reflect my own values in a lot of ways. Like I was picking partners based on just who like surfaced in my life, not based on anything else really. It was just this convenience factor. Like, oh, this Mm -hmm. guy asked me out, sure. I think that it was out of insecurity, you know, there's a lot of things I could maybe say about like, why, but I had never truly been like single ever since I left the porn industry. It just sounds like another way. I was single for a long time, like in my twenties, but I had never been single, like post porn, if that makes sense. And that felt like something significant. Suddenly I needed to just have this time to be single. So I, I didn't date anyone for a, a while after I got out of the hospital and that, definitely helped. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like just another way that you took your agency back where you're like, I'm not going to just let these guys choose me. I'm going to think about what I want and need and choose somebody based on that. Yes, exactly. And like, I'm dating someone now and we've been together for quite a bit. Um, but this relationship that I'm in developed completely differently than previous ones. It developed so organically. I was friends with him before we ever saw each other really in, a, in like a sexual way and you know and now we've been dating but we're also not monogamous <laughs> yeah okay and so it's kind of like going back to my original thing because it's funny that like even when I started dating when I was like 22 my original intent was like I always felt like I was a non-monogamous person so going back to that feels actually so much more comfortable for me I imagine so oh, okay so I'm going to move on to the next question mm-hmm. um The public tends to lump all sex workers into one big ginormous pot. And we both know, we all three of us know that it's so diverse. As a therapist who has worked, who has sex workers as clients, I've noticed that the more a sex worker can say who and how much and when, again, having agency, the happier they tend to be. In other words, there's a heavy correlation between happiness and privilege. what would you say is the difference between your relationship to porn as a more privileged porn performer versus someone who is less privileged or even trafficked? Wildly different. I mean, this is if if adult work or sex work is a spectrum, then porn performers who are someone like me in the place that I'm in in my career, I am so far on a on a more privileged end of that spectrum. Um you know, because you could compare what I do to someone who's a full service sex worker or like a street based sex worker. It's going to look very there's very little that it that we're going to have in common in the way we do our work and the risk that we're exposed to at work. There are still things that we do share in common, you know, the stigma of the work that we do, you know, even some of the like laws that have been passed recently, like FOSTA-SESTA, you know, that affects sex workers of all stripes. So there are obvious elements in common, but I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that like I, for the most part, you know, for example, the shutdown around coronavirus and just the whole pandemic hasn't really affected me financially very much because almost all of my work is online based anyway. And that's a huge privilege for me, you know, and even other people who do the same work that I do online who just don't have as much of a well-known name Uh, or as large of a fan base, like they might be in a less privileged position just because of the sheer like numbers of how many people know how to find their work online. So 
I do think that that makes a, a big difference. It's a, it's a pretty strong correlation with how happy I am in my work now is the fact that I, I feel this sense of security in what I do, which I was surprised by, actually. I was insanely afraid to go back into porn and quit my day job that I had like just over a year ago because I was like, no one, you know, I've been away from porn for five years. No one's going to remember me. You know, I don't think I'll even be able to like make a living doing that. And as soon as I made like an OnlyFans account and started posting publicly on social media again, I realized, oh shit, like <laughs> I still have a massive <laughs> fan base. Like there were people that just lit it seemingly sat around just waiting for me to pop up again and they were like oh here here's siri like wow and it blew my mind and it was actually really heartwarming like it made me feel like wow i have a fan base that really loves me and was like very excited for me to come back and that that's really cool yeah um, but yeah i mean it's yeah so i have so much to be grateful for and i remind myself of that literally every day um and yeah. it's part of why i feel so happy and fortunate to do something that i enjoy doing Mm. Sounds like it's you amazing. have some amazing fans. Yeah. I do. I'm very lucky. <laughs> so along these same lines, uh, in your activism efforts, you talk a lot about the harmful stigma that follows sex workers. You know, it leaves the most marginalized at greater risk for things like violent crime and often without access to important health, legal or financial resources. So what are some changes that you think would help this? Ooh, thank you for asking this. Um, so I'm going to step up on my little soapbox now. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> in the mm -hmm. long term, I think it is very necessary that sex work is decriminalized everywhere, preferably, you know, but I'm mm -hmm. in the U.S. So specifically, I would really like to see sex work decriminalized in the United States. Can you clarify quickly the difference between criminaliz or decriminalization and legalization for those that don't know? Yeah, legalization is like, you know, alcohol's legal, but anyone can't just go get alcohol. There are still regulations and it's controlled by the government on a governmental level. Legalization brings in forces that in the in the arena of like sex work, you know, cuz you can only compare sex work to like alcohol sales a little like it's it's just that's just to describe on a basic level like what legalization is, but mm. For example, if we say sex work is now legal, like or brothels are legal, but you have to get this certification, like there's all this stuff you have to do, all this bureaucracy you have to go through, that is now inviting police or law enforcement in to continue to cause harm to sex workers because you're not doing it the right way. Like it further complicates the situation and it actually does very little to make sex work safer. Mm. Um, when you legalize it. And a good example is like the Nordic model, where in Sweden, Norway, and other Scandinavian countries, you can legally sell sex. So I can be a sex worker there without getting arrested just for being a sex worker. However, it is not legalized to buy sex. And there wow. are lots of studies that show that this is a problematic model, and it actually still continues to increase harm against sex workers and destabilize their work and their income. So the only real way to safely allow sex workers to work is to decriminalize, which means that it is not under governmental control. It's just, you know, 
obviously, like, people a lot of the time misunderstand what decriminalization means. It's not saying, like, oh, you can go, like, pay anyone that you want for sex. That's not what that means. It just means that those of us who are sex workers are not going to be penalized just for doing the work we already do, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. When, it, when it's two adults having consensual sex and, you know, someone's filming it and they're getting paid or two adults having consensual sex behind closed doors and money exchanges hands in that process, like, that is no longer criminal. That's what decriminalization should look like. Okay, okay. And sorry for that side detour, but I thought that a lot of people don't know the difference between decriminalization and legalization, so I thought that was an important point. So, you know, what are some of the changes just overall? One, you know, decriminalization. Are there other things that you think would help those that are most marginalized that aren't on that privileged end of the spectrum when it comes to sex work? Oh, absolutely. Well, better uh, social services. (laughs) This is one of the reasons, and you know, I don't want to make this whole episode like about anything political, but anytime I talk about sex work and getting rid of the stigma around sex work, you, you truly can't, in my opinion, I can't separate that from the politics around it. Um, I mean, the truth is that even, even for folks who are like, oh, I want to stop sex trafficking or I want to stop children from being sex trafficked, things like that are like, okay, the way you do that is by increasing social services. Uh, you know, we need people to be housed. We need people to be fed. You know, if, if there are still teenagers who get kicked out and are living on the streets and yes, maybe are in a bad place where they're more likely to be sex trafficked because they're LGBT. Mm. Right. And that's like a huge section of the like violence against sex workers that doesn't really get talked about a lot is like how many people who experience violence and stigma are actually a part of the LGBT community. Um, Right. Yeah. So, and there's also, I mean, there's a lot going on right now with like anti, like anti human trafficking organizations that are also kind of anti porn organizations, you know, and all the stuff that just happened with Pornhub having their payment processing stopped. And it's all in the name of stopping sex trafficking. But when I look at the data and I look at those organizations, what I see is a lot of, them picking the perfect victim kind of like you wouldn't get a sense from some of these organizations what victims of human trafficking often look like because often they are Mm not uh white teenage girls a lot of the time they're actually you know trans people of color so yeah that's that's my smell test for (laughs) for organizations that say they're helping sex workers my smell test is like okay how many like black trans sex workers are you talking about or black trans trafficking victims are you talking about? Because if I don't see any, I'm like, mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, going back to what you said about how you, you know, cut down on on some of these um, troubles. You know, the book Half the Sky basically validates what you're saying. You know, in that book, they talk about like if you empower women and girls globally, if you educate them and give them opportunities, then they are less likely to get trafficked. You know, because they're yes. empowered. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know what, and in, in a world where we all have access to resources, that's, that's a thing that I think a lot of people uh, fail to understand is like, if, even if we had free health care and 
you know, no issues with homelessness in this country, no child hunger. If we were all perfectly well taken care of, there are tons of people, women, men, trans, like people of any gender who would still choose sex work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that because a lot of the time when I see people approaching the issue of like violence against sex workers, they think the resolution or the solution is, uh, we get rid of the sex workers, then they, then no one will be violent toward them. And it's like, no, no, no. You, <laughs> that's, right. That's, right. That's not how you fix the, that's, that's so, no. <laughs> yeah. They want an easy answer. And this is so complicated and nuanced. Yeah. The public tends to assume that most women choose porn as a profession because they are recapitulating a sexual abuse history. On a side note, as a therapist of 17 years, I know that sexual abuse is rampant regardless of professional choice. Accountants, lawyers, etc., very well may have a sexual abuse history. With that said, do you feel doing porn as a sexual abuse survivor was re-traumatizing, a healing experience, or both? And what is the difference psychologically between doing porn when you hadn't fully processed your sexual assault while concurrently in an emotionally abusive relationship versus doing porn at this point in your life when it appears that you feel much more rooted emotionally? I would say that by the time I actually got into the porn industry in 2012, you know, several years had passed since my sexual assault. It had been four years or so, four or five years. And even though I hadn't done a whole lot of emotional processing around it, what I had at least sort of started to discover about myself before I entered the porn industry was finding a little more autonomy in my body. You know, I did have what I called it my college like slut phase, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, that's just my shorthand for like uh, realizing that I do have the power to set my own boundaries and decide my partners and like, you know, be a little more control of my own sexuality So that was definitely helpful because by the time I got into porn, I did feel like I had a lot more control over establishing boundaries and communicating well with sex partners. And so what porn actually did for me was I would say that it was healing because it actually gave me a very safe space to not only try new things sexually that I was interested in trying uh, in like a, you know, pretty controlled and safe environment where everyone's tested, etc. But it also allowed me a space to like act out some of my own fantasies that I had sexually that I maybe wouldn't have felt safe doing just with like random some random guy from Tinder. And it allowed me to experiment with like setting my own boundaries and communicating with partners. Again, doing that all of that in a very public way because it's all filmed. Uh, mm-hmm. But I've also always been a a performer, you know, I wanted to be in on SNL when I was like a little kid. That was my life dream. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so funny. So, and, and as I said before, I was like a theater nerd. So, so porn for me was actually kind of the perfect outlet for, for doing all this sexual discovery that, that in a lot of ways functioned as a way to begin the work of healing myself. I think mm-hmm. it, it did a lot of the physical healing work, but I, you know, during that 2012 to 2015, I probably still hadn't done a whole lot of my emotional healing. And that's that's what came later. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Now, in your prior episode, you mentioned having body dysmorphia, and that mm-hmm. started when you were a teenager. So 
how are you healing your relationship with your body now? And is the power lifting that you do a part of that? Yeah, my dysmorphia when I was a teenager was pretty severe uh to the degree that like I, I i i truly like hated my body especially when i started developing and grew these boobs that were like way larger than anything i ever wanted on my body uh and all my fans now are because no, i'm very open about the fact that i've had breast reduction surgery i had it back in 2016 so almost mm-hmm. exactly uh five years ago now so that was kind of what started my dysmorphia was like, you know, post puberty realizing that I went from being like a, a little tomboy to being a, a, well, a woman, you know, with more curves on my body than I had really expected to have. And -hmm. it just got worse through high school. You know, I, as I mentioned, I like didn't date in high school and I, I remember having dreams. Like I would have vivid dreams when I was like 15, 16 that I, in my dream, I would wake up in a different body. Wow. And I would feel such a sense of relief that I wasn't in my own body anymore. Mm. Like, and I couldn't even describe it as like a hate for my body because it, it was just like this extreme disappointment. (laughs) Just, I just had the sense of like, this is not what I'm supposed to be in. Like it just felt, everything felt so wrong. You know, and, and what's funny is that even once I got into porn, I still had a lot of that dysmorphia. Um, you can tell there are like I, I remember doing behind the scenes interviews and some scenes that I was in where I was asked about, you know, my boobs, because people would always ask about me having these extremely large boobs. And there were interviews where I was like, yeah, I would totally like love to not have these. <laughs> and I was, I was pretty honest about it. And like fans hated that. But, you know. I mean, that's that's how I felt. And uh, so a huge part of that dysmorphia for me was actually doing the breast reduction surgery. It, it truly helped. And so I've, I've talked about my decision to have that surgery since in a in a way of saying, like, look, self-love and body positivity can mean for some people that you do choose to change something about yourself. What matters is, like, mm-hmm. why is this the choice? Is this something that you genuinely feel is going to improve your relationship to your body or do you want to change your body drastically because society tells us we need to look a certain certain way right and and, you know every uh, women should have complete bodily autonomy autonomy (laughs) absolutely and yeah so so a huge like moment for me was having breast reduction surgery five years ago uh at the time i had already begun powerlifting but I wasn't super serious about it. I was just kind of like fiddling around and finding out what I liked. But mm-hmm. as soon as I started getting into lifting weights, I I did realize that I enjoyed it. This was a type of physical activity that I enjoyed more than anything else I'd ever tried. Because um, I wasn't like on sports teams growing up. I just did karate. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't really, you know, I never had a moment in my life where I was like in a weight room and got to experience that. And it was addictive as soon as I found it. So since then, I've, it's just become a huge part of my life. Like at this point, I spend about 15 hours a week in the gym, um, well, give or take. It's it's a lot. Like that's I train, amazing. I train hard. It's a, yeah, it's a huge part of my life. I I have competed a few times and it's an incredible feeling to know that I can 
just lift a very heavy thing and put it down again. <laughs> but would you say that you're friends with your body now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it, the, the biggest thing that powerlifting has given me is relating to my body in a way that I am not seeing what it looks like so much as what it's capable of. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And powerlifting okay. is, is great for that. It's great for me because uh, all of my goals in this sport are related to wh what I can do. You know, it's like, I have a goal that's like, I want to deadlift 300 pounds. Yeah. I also need to be a certain, like, sorry. Uh, another thing that's changed is just the idea of weight. You know, I, I was very self-conscious about my weight when I was a teenager and I've, gained weight. I've lost weight many times in my life, but when I got really serious about powerlifting was the first time that it started to shift my idea in my own mind about what my weight means. Because now if I, I do weigh myself regularly, but it's because I need to know what weight class I'm in when I enter a competition, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, it's not cause I'm like, Oh no, I gained five pounds. Actually. Now if I gain five pounds, I'm like, that's great. Cause it's probably muscle. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that that part where you said I shifted my focus from how I look to what my body is capable of, that really landed for me because, I mean, just briefly, when I had cancer last year, that's kind of what the shift that happened in my head, you know, because for a little while, I didn't know if I was going to, I didn't know the stage of the cancer. And once you go through that and you have your mortality in your face, it's kind of like you're just so grateful that you have a body you know, that does all the things and yeah. it really shifts your focus from thinking about whether you look like Kim Kardashian or, or whoever to just being glad that your body works for you and, you know, or, or does the things that it does for you, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. yeah. Uh, let's see. So in your podcast, um, your podcast led to epiphanies and those epiphanies led to understanding the need to be authentic in, in your life which included going back to sex work. And earlier in this, by, in, in this session, you said that it also led to you being non-monogamous. Is there any other changes that have had, you know, that have happened since you realized the importance of being authentic in your life? Yeah, I've been a lot more open with folks in my life, whether they're just acquaintances or family members or friends of mine. But basically at this point, everyone knows what I do for a living. And that's actually been fantastic because being so open about being a sex worker has the benefit of anyone who doesn't like that I'm a sex worker. It's pretty evident to me because <laughs> mm -hmm. it's like everyone knows I'm not hiding this thing. So if someone treats me differently because they know what I do for a living, then that's my cue to be like, and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing filter, isn't it? It is. Mm -hmm. I don't have to deal with people who... Are, don't respect me because of what I do for a living. Uh, and that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mentioned that I am now again in a non-monogamous relationship and that has been wonderful. Um, one thing that I love about non-monogamy and the relationship I'm in now specifically is that it, it requires a lot of commitment to communicating regularly and communicating about boundaries and setting boundaries and maintaining boundaries and then regularly talking about those boundaries and moving them if they need to be moved or like reassessing them. So it's just this constant work 
Um, and, and that's the thing. I, I'm not sure that folks who have never been in a non-monogamous relationship or would never consider one necessarily understand on the surface is like, I, I feel so much closer to my partner because of all this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely uh, enriched my life in many ways. I have a two-part question about your your self-care and your inner strength. So first, what inner strength or help allowed you to heal after you got out of the hospital? And secondly, what self-care have you done since then to heal, you know, whether that's meditation, therapy, et cetera? Well, for inner strength, I, I've in the past used the word resilient to describe myself. Um, and I would say that that resilience definitely kicked in around that time. It, it's very weird. It's an odd mental shift to, you know, be incredibly suicidal and then feel that mental shift toward like, you know, I've definitely been through worse than this. Like, and, and maybe someday I will once again go through worse than this. But the, the fact that I've already been through a real shitstorm emotionally and survived it is definitely something that I think I clung to a lot, especially during that week that I was in the hospital. I don't even know where that comes from, honestly, because I had a comparatively really easy childhood. <laughs> I mean, up until high school, things were totally fine. <laughs> well, honestly, um, you know, there, there's a book. Let's see if I can remember the um, name of it. Why Love Matters. Um, I think the name of it. And it talks about how if you're a baby from the time, you know, you're in the crib and the first six years of your life, if you're given a lot of love, that literally forms neural connections in the brain that allow you to be more like that Obama-like calm and have that resilience. So if your parents yeah. that you've re referenced many times as being loving really were there for you a lot... Um, and held you and didn't let you cry it out and all that, that might have contributed to the fact that you can click into this resilience that seems to come out of nowhere at later that parts of sense. your life. That makes so much sense. And yes, my parents, my parents did as a child love me a lot. They still love me a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, they'll never listen to this, but you know, it's, I, I, my family has so much love in it and you know, it's, it sucks that this is something I've talked to my therapist about is like, I, I'm not a parent and I don't think I'll ever be a parent, but uh, the therapist I had for years was a parent and we would talk about this a lot. She was like, you know, my I know that my parents really, really literally tried their hardest. And so the things in my past that I'm like, they could have done this better. Like I, I try to maintain that perspective. They are also human beings. But I, I think, yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that, Kate, because... I remember having a an incredibly blissful childhood, you know, and it was just that time around puberty when things started to get real hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That literally changes the way your brain looks, you know, like the neural connections, yeah. et cetera. So that, that could account for a lot. What do you see in your future as a sex worker? And also, what do you see as the future of porn and sex work? in this country and or the world? This is our final question. <laughs> Ooh, in my future, like, you know, part of my decision to return to working in adult film was that I wanted to, uh, 
will not only do something that I enjoy, that I have more uh, stability and more control over, you know, my, my own work environment, but I, I wanted to work in a place where I feel like I actually have the ability to make a difference. And that's part of why I've spoken out more about stigma against sex workers. Uh, and like more recently, I was uh, invited to join the board of directors of a nonprofit called the Victim Advocacy Project, which we do work around helping victims of crime access resources. Like a huge thing that VIP does is like help victims of abuse and stalking obtain restraining orders. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's part of also what I feel like is a, a calling for me is to use my platform that I have now, not only grow that platform larger, but use it to actually make a, as much of a difference as I can in my industry and in also areas that are sort of aligned to my industry. Uh, like the reason I'm on the board of VAP primarily is because I'm a sex worker and they need voices of sex workers to influence how that nonprofit is run to make sure that they're not excluding anyone. Yeah. Organizations like, you know, victims advocacy project are so important and it's wonderful that you're on the board there. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are similar, like there are sex work specific orgs that do outreach help like, uh, sex workers outreach project. Um, and it, it, all of that is incredibly important. And I definitely see that playing a part in the future of sex work, especially as we see more, um, really like anti-sex work legislation being proposed. FOSTA-SESTA was, uh, <laughs> awful. Yeah. <absolutely>. We're still <laughs> all seeing, uh, the results of that, like on a daily basis. So, um, yeah, I, I have a lot of fear around the future as well, or like worry, you know, when it comes to internet censorship. And it's hard to know what the future will bring. I think the fact that uh, we have a new administration might help a little bit, but yeah. eh, you know. And, yeah. and again, just to pipe in, yeah, <laughs> right, we'll see. I'm sharing in your anxiety, I'm like, ah! Yeah, <laughs> like for, for any listeners who are maybe not uh, super up-to-date politically on all the sex work political issues, like Kamala Harris co-signed FOSTA-SESTA and was a, a big fan really into that bill and that it has been like the worst thing for sex workers in the past couple of years. Yeah, it's promoted so, as a good thing, but when you understand right. the details, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's really a mixed bag. Like, I, I am a person who's always very hopeful. Uh, I actually do consider myself an optimist very much. Like, I... I, I think that people, if they get the right information, they'll be on the right side of history and they'll want to do the least harm. So, and, and that's the issue that we have a lot of the time with this legislation is like these bills are being framed as like, oh, we're helping victims of trafficking. But if you look at the actual effects, it's, it's not, it's just hurting sex workers. So it, it's just about framing all the issues in a way and, and educating people about what's really going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the future is going to be complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it will be. Uh, you know, part of me wonders, like, because I think after the Pornhub uh, Visa Mastercard debacle, and and that's you still can't 
use a Visa or a MasterCard to buy anything on Pornhub. Like, their payment system is still shut down pretty much. And it's been uh, well over a month since the mm-hmm. early, since, like, December 10th that it ha- that, that happened. And I know that a lot of the community of uh, adult performers and porn stars have been kind of waiting, holding our breath to see if they attack, like, OnlyFans next. Because... Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of people's bread and butter. It is mine mm-hmm. as well. So that's a very scary thing. It's like, oh God, are they going to come after OnlyFans? But I think about, I spend a lot of time thinking about this lately. The num- the sheer number of like actually very powerful mainstream celebrities who use OnlyFans might help. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. Which is kind of a grand irony here because, you know, back in 2020... Bella Thorne got a bunch of shit for essentially breaking OnlyFans and making like $2 million in a weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also like the more mainstream celebrities use this platform, the less, the less likely it actually is to be taken down. Uh, right. So I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Bittersweet. It yeah. Is. Yeah, it is. So, okay, I'm, I'm just reflecting back on our last two episodes with you and everything that I've learned about, not only about you, but the, the themes and the bigger pictures that I've taken away from listening to your story. And I always get my movie references wrong. I think this is Jurassic Park. Is it Life Finds a Way? Is that Jurassic Park? <laughs> right? Yes, it is. So I, I am like, it's more like healing finds a way. You know, when I when I reflect back on your story from the song that you wrote way back when and you didn't realize what the lyrics meant to, you know, some of the patterns that you repeated and repeated and repeated until, you know, your need to heal pretty much bonked you over the head and was like, hey, you know, we need to do this, Um, you know, and from that came authenticity and agency and, and shattering stigmas, you know, whether that's around sexual abuse or sex work. And, and then even the bigger picture of you doing this advocacy work, uh, you know, for victims, for sex workers. It's just, you know, I don't know. The, the image I have is, is the life finds a way, you know, <laughs> it grew and into something great. And that couldn't have happened without your healing and without you, you know, taking these steps and sometimes these fumbles until it found a way. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I saw a lot of myself reflected in your story, even though the details might be different. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are as well. So we really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a fantastic experience. I'm so happy to share all of this. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, we really loved, you know, just this whole process with you. And I, I think, you know, just hearing your journey just shows people that there's all these different ways to heal. Like some people think I must go to therapy or I, you know, they have some kind of pathway in their head or they may say to themselves, I'm poor, I can't afford therapy. So there's no way for me to heal. And that's that's not true. There's all these different pathways that can help you heal from, from sexual abuse or whatever traumas you've experienced in your life. And, and you have shown your pathway. And um, we really appreciate that. And, and so I just want to thank you for coming on, Siri. It's not easy to be vulnerable, and, but I bet a lot of folks learned from your story or received help from hearing your journey. So, you know, thank you for your courage in coming on and, and just all the choices you've made. 
It's appreciated. And to listeners, we hope that you will join us again next time when we dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.